So Jacob's dad and I split when he was four and a half. A difficult decision to make, not because I believed that there was hope for the marriage. I knew that wasn't the case. Just two different people, two completely different ways of doing things. There was just no. And it had gotten to the point where it was, I mean, to be honest, sometimes it was just flat out hateful. It was beyond just not getting along. I mean, there were ugly fights and there were constant disagreements and arguments. There was a lot of just not talking to each other. It There was a vibe in the house and definitely an energy that other people felt when they were around us that things were just not good. And I have no doubt that that had an effect on Jacob. I mean, how could it not? It was certainly having an effect on me. I'm sure his dad would say that it had an effect on his own happiness and well-being. I mean, we were we were both miserable. And I do believe that everything affects everything. And so if Jacob was surrounded by a lot of stress, then he was stressed too. I mean, it's really hard to maintain your place of peace when you're surrounded by angry people. This I know as an adult <laughs> because I've worked really hard to not be affected by everybody else's mood. And I think there's a lot of us that are that way. And I certainly believe that Jacob, as an infant and a toddler and as a four and a half year old, he was definitely picking up on that. And it was not helping his situation at all. Now, the reason that it was a difficult decision to make was Jacob was a handful to take care of. And I could not imagine me doing all of it all the time by myself. And that's not to say that, you know, it wasn't going to be shared parenting because it was. Of course, he was going to go to his dad's. But when he was home with me, it was 100% on me. All hands on deck and all the hands there were were two. And they were mine. <laughs> and I was, I, you know, I was like, God, you know, this is going to be, it's good. This is going to be tough. And you know what it was? At this point, he's still not able to communicate with us in words or in a way that we can really understand. There's just a lot of crying, a lot of screaming, a lot of drama. And we were kind of left to our own devices to try to figure out what was going on with him, what was causing the distress. And, you know, it's just a guessing game. It's just a, well, I think it's this and somebody else might think it's that. And it's just, I don't know what, a, what it is he's trying to, to tell us. If he's even trying to tell us anything. You know, we just didn't know. So it was like just this huge stress cycle. We were stressed because we had this kid that we so desperately wanted to help, but really weren't sure what to do because everything that we were doing felt wrong and it didn't feel like it was really making any difference and it wasn't really helping in any profound ways. I mean, yeah, you, you always see little improvements here or there or there, but you know, we wanted to see big improvements <laughs> and all we were saying, just a little bit, you know, a little bit better here, but it, it, it also felt like it would get a little bit better here and then somewhere else it would get worse or get bigger and bolder. The, the distress would heighten in another arena. It was, I always just felt like I was chasing my tail and, and not getting anywhere. 
But I did feel a, a deeper sense of calm in the house. You know, there was a definite, okay, you know, now I've, I've only got to try to communicate clearly with one male instead of two. So 100% of my focus could be on Jacob. So by the time that he was five and a half, we had seen a few changes in him. We'd done something called the sensory learning program, which combined therapies for sight, sound, and motion. And we'd seen some changes with him there. That's when he first started to make some eye contact with us. And that was really great. There was another point where he actually sat down on the couch like for a minute instead of constant movement. I mean, I had a trampoline on every floor of the house. I had a trampoline in the basement. I had a trampoline on the main floor. In fact, I think I had two on the main floor. One in front of the TV in the living room and then one in front of a TV in what's supposed to be the formal living room or in office and then it kind of been a playroom for him. And then another one up in his bedroom. I mean, he was a kid that was constantly moving. He was jumping on the trampoline or he was pacing back and forth watching his shadow on the wall. He liked to bounce on exercise balls. He would sit on one and bounce. And I mean, this kid could get some air under his butt. He'd come flying up off a ball and there would be like three feet air between the ball and him. I don't know how he ever did it with the balance, how he always came back down on the ball. I think I would have landed on my tailbone and it would have been a severe injury, but constant movement, constant movement. And we actually saw him sit down. <laughs> it worried me at first. I'm like, oh my God, is he feeling okay? <laughs> Why is he just sitting there? So that was encouraging. Also, you know, health-wise, the the constipation had cleared up. He settled down once we got the gluten and the dairy out of his diet, the gluten and the casein. Once it was gone, we started with the supplements. That seemed to be having an effect on physiological issues. And there was still a very, very large hill to climb. And I was looking. I was just looking. I was open. I think that's a good way to put it. I was open to pretty much anything and everything. So when my boss suggested to me that I watch this brand new movie that had just come out that was featured on Oprah (laughs) called The Secret, I said, okay. (laughs) So if you've never seen or heard of the movie The Secret, and there's also a series of books out there, it's all about the law of attraction and how your thoughts become things. And in the personal development world, there are a lot of differing opinions surrounding the secret. There are some that think it's the greatest movie ever made, the greatest books ever written. And there are others that say it's all complete and total bullshit. And then you have everything in between. And I see all points. (laughs) I really do. But I was riveted. I mean, I was really riveted. There was something, I knew there was something in there for me. I knew that there was something for me to learn. And what I walked away with was the understanding that my thoughts create my reality. In that I can look at any situation, any situation in my life, in Jacob's life, in the world, and I can choose to believe whatever I want to believe about that situation. And whatever belief it is that I choose is going to create the way that I think about it, feel about it, handle it, what I do with it. You know, at the time I was having a really, really 
a hard time with work. I wasn't having any fun at all. And the main reason that I had gotten into radio was it was fun. And I loved going to work every day and having fun. It never felt like a job. But at the time I saw that movie, it was feeling like a job. And it felt like torture. Torture. It's not really, honestly, not an exaggeration to get up at three or four o'clock in the morning and go in and do this job that I wasn't enjoying. And then going home to a life at home where I loved my kid. God, I loved him more than anything. And I wasn't having any fun because it was just so hard. So I took this idea that I'm creating my reality by the thoughts that I think. And I'm like, all right, let's focus on gratitude because that's another thing in the movie. What about this job am I grateful for? I was grateful that I was working for a really good company. I was grateful that I was working with some really awesome people. I was grateful that I was getting paid. I was grateful that I wasn't getting fired because I know that I wasn't performing at the level that was expected of me because of everything that was going on in my world and because of my inability to find things to be grateful for. So I really put forth an effort to find things to be grateful for about the job. And then on my way to work every day, I would have this conversation with myself and I would talk about all of the things that I was thankful and grateful for. And I would listen to music that would inspire me and I would set intentions. I'm going in there today and I'm gonna have fun. I'm gonna find things to talk about that I enjoy talking about. I'm gonna find something entertaining and funny and interesting about anything and everything that we talk about on the radio today. I'm gonna choose to have a good time. And I noticed a shift. It did, you know, it did start to get better. And at home, I was grateful for the people that I was getting to know who were trying to help us. I was grateful for family and friends. I was grateful that I had the time and the money and the wherewithal to look into things that could help Jacob. I was grateful that I had this beautiful child that I loved dearly. Things at home started to get a little bit better. And as much as my mild shifting in my thinking surrounding work and home was cool. What really struck me about the concept of thoughts creating realities was looking at Jacob's reality. And I saw this kid who seemed very stressed out about everything in the world around him. He seemed very anxious. He was definitely obsessive. He was definitely compulsive. There seemed to be genuine fear he didn't appear to want anything to do with other people, myself included. There didn't seem to be any desire to connect and interact and form relationships and communicate. I mean, he didn't even try, you know, I mean, he still at five and a half wasn't pointing at things. <laughs> you know, he couldn't use words, but I mean, he wouldn't even point at things that he wanted that were out of his reach. Never even let us know if he was hungry. The, the, the simple, you know, the simplest of things. So if his thoughts were creating this reality for him, my thought process became, okay, how can I change his thoughts so his reality changes and he wants to be with me and he wants to communicate with me 
And he wants to interact with me and he wants to have a relationship with me and he wants to go places and do things with me. That he wants to participate in the world in a way that I participate in the world. <laughs> He's definitely doing his own thing. And he may have been perfectly happy. I, you know, it's impossible for me to say. Maybe someday he'll be able to tell me. I hope that's the case. But from what I could see, there wasn't much peace or serenity or acceptance or just calm in his world. And I wanted to figure out how to get inside his brain, change his thoughts, so his reality would change. So then after this movie, I started reading some books. One book would lead me to another book, would lead me to another book, would lead me to another book. I was reading all kinds of metaphysical stuff. I was looking at all kinds of spiritual stuff. I was looking at psychology books and quantum physics. <laughs> all of these biographies written by people who have had kids who were different. And, and, you know, one would lead to another, do another, do another. And one day I was in Borders, walking around, doing what I always did. Just waiting for something to jump out at me. I realized I hadn't been over in the psychology department for a while. So I wandered over there. And up in child psychology, I saw a book that I had never seen before. And there was only one copy of it. And it jumped out at me. It was called Sunrise, The Miracle Continues. It's a book written by Barry Neal Kaufman. And it was about his son, Ron. He and his wife, Samaria, back in the early 70s, had a son who was diagnosed with severe autism at the age of 18 months. And they were told back then by the doctors and all of the experts to just give up. That there was absolutely nothing that could be done. This kid was never even going to be able to dress himself. They had two older daughters. They said, focus on your daughters. Just plan on institutionalizing this child because there's nothing anybody can do to help him. Well, they didn't buy into that at all. So they took Ron home. And for about six months, they just watched him. They paid really close attention to everything that he was doing. And just trying to figure him out. You know, he was a kid that liked to to spin plates. So he would spin plates for hours on end. And they were so fascinated by this tiny little human that behaved in ways that they had never seen before. And they just got really, really curious. So after about six months of watching Ron and taking notes, they decided to try something. They decided to work with him one-on-one -on -one in a non-distracting environment. And their entire goal was to connect with him, to build a bridge that would go into his world. And if he would allow them into his world, the hope they had was that he would then eventually cross that bridge and enter theirs. So what they started doing was joining him in all of his repetitive behaviors. You know, he would do things all by himself and just do them over and over and over again. So she got down on the floor with him and she spun plates and she positioned herself in a way where it would be easy for him to look up at her and make eye contact. So she would be in front of him and down just a little bit. She'd spin the plate, spin the plate, and spin the plate. And any other activity that he would participate in. Eventually, he did. And he started to make eye contact with her. They came up with this entire plan on how to build their relationship just little by little by little. And it was all about loving him, accepting him, not judging him. And that was it. You know, there, there was no agenda in that they had to change this child. They just wanted to be with him on his terms and love him. It really was that simple. And as they continued to do that, Ron changed. And he changed and he changed and he changed. 
till eventually, the age of five, he lost his autism diagnosis, went on to live a completely typical childhood, went to Brown University, got a degree in biomedical ethics, and now he's this uber successful dude in his 40s. Well, obviously, I left a lot of details of their story out because there's an entire book written about it. But anyway, this book became, I think it was, I don't know if it was NBC or CBS Sunday Night Movie. And people all over the world watched it and started contacting them and saying, hey, I want you to teach me how to do this with my kid. Can you show me what you did? Teach me, teach me, teach me. And so that's when they opened the Autism Treatment Center of America in Sheffield, Massachusetts. And they started teaching families how to do this program with their kids. So anyway, I read this book in like two days. I'm sobbing the entire time. I'm like, this is the answer. Nothing else has ever made as much sense as this has, and I have to do So I booked a flight, and I went out, (laughs) and I took the program. It was a week-long program, and I learned how to start a program at home with Jacob, and everybody thought I was freaking nuts. Well, not everybody, but all of the experts and therapists that we'd been working with up until this point I can remember one particular doctor (laughs) when I told her that this is what we were going to do. She just looked at me. She goes, I do not recommend that. I have had parents who have tried it and it just doesn't work. It's not good. You're going to do more harm than good. She started laundry listing all of these different reasons why we shouldn't do it. And the entire time I'm just sitting there. And my gut's telling me, you're wrong. You're wrong. Maybe that's other parents' experience, but no. This is it. This is it. And I could just remember feeling so certain. And I was, like, pretty tickled with myself that all of these people that so many considered to be experts, and they are, about what they know and about what they've learned, but they aren't Jacob's best expert. And in my gut, I knew that. And I knew that what I was doing was right. So he was in first grade at the time. And I had gone the first week of December out to take this class. He had just turned six. And I don't remember why I was stopping by his classroom, but I had to stop for something. And they usually don't let parents into the classroom because it was too distracting and it was too much of a disruption for the students. But I was there that day and he was out on recess and so I was in the classroom when he returned he walked into the room looked right through me I was standing right in front of him and I'm his mother and he looked at me as if he had no idea who I was and he blew right by me and went straight to wash his hands and I went over to him and I squatted down and I got right in front of his face hi buddy how are you not one look of recognition and that that was it I walked out ah, of that classroom and beyond a shadow of a doubt, I knew that I was doing the right thing for him and for me, that this was our best shot. I pulled him out of school and I started working with him at home. That was the beginning of our sunrise program and it just felt right. Finally, something felt right. And finding that book and following my gut and sticking with my gut and standing my ground 
knowing, just knowing, yeah, that lesson has served me well. So much to be grateful for.